Welcome back to the Know Me podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Nomi Podcast. I'm Madeline, a certified professional coach and your co-host. And I'm Cynthia, licensed therapist, the other half of our mother-daughter team. We created this podcast to be a place to join the conversation around learning about ourselves and living more joyful and fun lives. Speaking of that, we also have leadership coach and therapist Ellie Lane joining us for this episode. Ellie is actually my office mate in our physical practice, and we're coming together today to discuss something we all have experience with running into your therapist at the grocery store. Well, maybe not all of us, but it speaks to the larger challenge of how awkward and uncomfortable talking about mental health or sometimes even general health can feel. There's a lot of shame, embarrassment, and all sorts of icky stuff in there. And that can often get in the way of having really important conversations. In our fun and lighthearted conversation with Ellie, we cover how to be a resource to the people we care about and contribute to overcoming stigma in the world around mental well-being. Plus, we really do talk about when we run into the therapist in the grocery store. So if it's nothing else, stick around for that. We're glad you're here. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Nomi Podcast. We have another very special guest with us today. Ellie, how are you? Hello. Hi, Madeline. Hi, Cynthia. Hello. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. I am so excited to have this conversation today because I had a moment yesterday in my other life, my non-coaching life. I am a polymer clay earring seller, and I had a double market weekend, which means that I was at a market on Saturday and Sunday. And on Sunday, I looked up, and my wonderful couples counselor was standing right in front of me. And my friend was there with me, and we haven't I haven't even worked with her for a year, and I haven't seen her since a year ago. And I just had this moment where I was like, I don't even know how to react right now. I don't know if I should give context to my friend who's standing next to me. I don't know if I should just talk to her like she's my friend. I don't know if I should say, well, yeah, the last time I was in your office, this is how what we talked about and this is what I was doing and here's what I'm doing now and report on my husband. And I just did not know what to do. And it's it was hilarious to me after it happened because I'm a coach. So this awkwardness around talking about mental health should be normal for me. I just had this funny moment and I wanted to talk to you guys around why it is that sometimes even for those of us that really advocate for these things, it's still so awkward to talk about our mental health journeys. I'm curious what you ended up doing, but in the meantime, it's funny that you say that, Madeline, because on the other end, like being a therapist and being a coach, I often think about that. What if I run into clients and I'm with my family? And basically, I always come back to let me let them take the lead on that because of the training around confidentiality, privacy, boundaries, and that kind of thing. But it's like you're bringing up the, where's the intersection between that kind of privacy and and confidentiality and just being human? What comes up for me is uh, the word shame. The stigma and the shame around mental health is that something's wrong with you, right? You're broken. You're not enough. You can't cope on your own. I got into the counseling game later in life and totally get privacy. And there's privacy around a whole bunch of things, even like family meetings. We can tell our kids, you know what, let's make sure that this conversation kind of stays in these four walls. And and there's ethics and privacy around and confidentiality around what you might do with a, a good friend, right? That you're having a conversation and you're like, 
of would prefer that it not be shared with the rest of our friend group or tennis group or whatever it is. I think what stops a conversation is this big, bad shame. I think there is still a lot of stigma around getting help for things that aren't physical, but coaching came from sports. That's where it originated. And mental health, I think we're getting there, like we're eking in the direction of normalizing it. I agree. I think we're still a long way away. And with more and more mental health practitioners talking about it, hopefully we can destigmatize it a bit. I think it also goes both ways. I can see the role as a coach and I can see the role as a client because there are sometimes as well with my sessions where I'm the client and I'm working with a coach or I'm working with a therapist. And I'm like, how much of that can I really share, especially in like public forums? This confidentiality thing, I think, has this connotation of of secrecy to it, which perpetuates the shame. And so a big part of it for me is also bringing in what is confidentiality actually about? And that's trust. It's hard to feel confident in trust in a relationship where you aren't quite sure where you stand. And so with, I think, therapy especially, one of the big parts of what do I do in the grocery store if I see my therapist? Do I run the other direction or do I go hug her? Is I don't know what that relationship looks like outside of the environment we've created to Together. And until we bump into that, I'm not gonna know. And so a big part of this, I think, is just being more open with what we want that to look like. Answering the question, even in our early sessions, I like to ask my clients literally this question. If I see you in the grocery store, what do you want me to do? Because then I feel prepared for where our relationship stands. And for some people, I'd actually prefer to just wave and walk away. And for others, it's no, I really want to say hi to you. So I think trust is also with transparency, is understanding where do I stand with you in these other contexts? What is our relationship here from both sides that the client knows what to do and so that we know what to do as professionals? I love that, that you're putting, you're tying the word confidentiality with trust because it is, it's mutual, right? It's mutual trust. And in order to establish that, We need to be able to talk about those things. We need to be able to identify our needs. And I think it is important even outside in all our relationships of what are my needs of you and what are your needs of me? And maybe we don't know them off the bat, but we can at least start the conversation. That also helps in the counseling room with the power dynamic. And I love setting up really clear agreements with clients about What are we doing in the work together? And that's happened more for me, at least as a coach than as a therapist. The agreements have been more about, here's the contract. This is what we're doing. We're meeting in my office every other week for an hour. Here's the confidentiality and some other parts. But that's mostly been the initial agreement or contract. Whereas I found with coaching, it's so much more involved because... In theory, people are much more active in creating what they want from the coaching. If your therapist or coach is asking you, what do you want me to do when I see you out somewhere? How empowering is that to the person? So I love that. I mean, we do it with our partners, right? I remember having the very serious conversation with my now husband of, are we boyfriend, girlfriend now? What do we want to introduce each other? (laughs) That was a long 
long time ago. I can't remember back that far. 30 years. <laughs> yeah. And as a coach, one of it as well, like one of the biggest things that you get trained on is the designed alliance or here in the UK, they call it contracting, which sounds very formal. I prefer designed alliance. And a big part of it is because in the coaching relationship, it's more about the empowered relationship. And so when we talk about these things, I joke about boyfriend, girlfriend, but it's asking ourselves the question beyond just therapists and coaches and whatever, how can we create more empowered relationships in our lives where we feel comfortable just seeing the person in front of us and having these spaces because it's so wonderful what confidentiality can do to create a safe space within a therapy office or a coaching practice or what have you. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we didn't feel that the only time we could really be vulnerable and we could really put our fear of judgment aside around how we're doing and how we're being as people, what if that wasn't just in that therapy office or in that coaching room? What if it was with all the relationships in your life? So for me, these questions are not just about our practices and how we manage our client relationships. It's also about how we have more open dialogues and introduce safe spaces for vulnerability with all the relationships in our lives to create that empowerment. One of the things that comes to mind with vulnerability is first going internal. Preaching, again, at least I'm consistent, right, is we got to go internal and we have to realize what we're fearful of because our natural reaction is going to be to protect ourselves because vulnerability can sometimes in our minds or in reality open us up to, for harm, more ways to be harmed. And so we really need to check in with ourselves as far as why am I feeling uncomfortable about sharing this particular insight or this particular bit of information with someone else? What's my belief around that? What's my thought around that? What's my feeling around that, right? Once we get in touch with that, then we can hold it. I always like to say, if I swallow the pen, I can't see it. I can't figure out what it, what to do with the pen. But if I have the pen in my visual or in my hands, then I can do something with the pen. I can look at that fear or that concern or that vulnerability and I can say, is it real? Is there something I want to do before that? Because maybe what I want to do is I want to talk to somebody and I want to just say, what you're feeling about holding some space or privacy around this? Or do you have any biases around conversations? You have a list of conversations that I'm not allowed to have with you and things like that. So my thing is we start with internal because if we know what's going on for us, then it's easier to mitigate and and figure out what's going on for, and know the questions to ask the other person. And you mentioned at the very beginning, if we could get away from this idea of we are broken to understanding that we aren't and to being open to just looking at how we see things whomever we are, right? How are we seeing ourselves in the world? How are we reacting to and creating meaning about what is occurring in our world? At first it's, wait, what do you mean? I'm responsible? Like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 it's them or it's that or it's because it's easier at first to put the responsibility out there. Mm. But once people can see a little bit that actually that creates so much power 
to have that internal responsibility and to see, oh, I can actually think about it maybe in this other way. Regardless of who I am, what I'm coming up against in life, once we can see, oh, I could actually think about this in a different way and that could literally change my world. Now people are feeling more empowered, I find. For the longest time, the belief has been that people are broken, especially people who go to therapy are broken. The big belief shift for me has been the world is broken. People are not. There is something that's broken, right? It's not that everything is fine and dandy. There is something that is broken, but it's not the individual. And this is, I think, a huge part of stigma and the mental health crisis is that we are individualizing a systemic problem. We make the individual responsible for being okay in a world that is volatile and scary and overwhelming and fear-inducing. And we have to be resilient as individuals and we have to find our way to manage our way through it, right? Otherwise, there won't be real change. But this shift from people are broken to the world is broken was really powerful for me because then sharing and being really truly vulnerable became more about relating to my other whole people on how we can address this broken world, how we can maybe fix it a little, how we can improve it, how we can make it a happier place to be, even if it's not just the whole world, but our immediate environments. And this empowerment you're speaking of, Ellie, I think is so wonderful because once you get over the initial hurdle of it feels scary to be responsible, you feel the power of being responsible and how much impact you can have with that responsibility. That is really what we mean when we talk about empowerment is that responsibility and realization that you can have an impact on the world around you. And so starting with self is so important because it inevitably leads to us expressing our true, authentic, beautiful versions of us in a world that deserves to receive us in our full sense. Yeah. And the world is actually us. We're the ones creating the systems and so forth. So we have to start, I believe, with us comes back to our own responsibility of, of how we show up and how we interact with people at home, with the systems at our workplaces, in any system. But it, it all has to start with us. I've said for a long time, like I mentioned, I became a counselor in my mid-40s. And I remember it being a really pivotal time. Leslie University, where I got my master's degree, had this thing of self as instrument. And I think that was the first time that I actually had the tools to really go and experience for myself as well as with someone else. And the information that it gave of when I'm thinking about bringing my authentic self, what does that mean? What is that? Or bringing my whole self or bringing my whatever self, right? What does that really look like? How can I make that tangible? I love this point about your authentic self. In the coaching world, be your authentic self. And I don't know if you find this, Madeline, but I find there's a lot of coachy words. What in the world is that? Who's going to I'm not going to talk to somebody in that way. We could talk to each other that way. I suppose it's like that in any profession. There's yeah. language and lingo, right? So, okay, making that real, being your authentic self is just knowing who you are, what you value, what you love, what your strengths are, that kind of thing. And then being true to that. By the way, not easy and nobody's doing that all the time and every minute. So we don't need to have like tons of pressure around that either and being perfect in that way. If you know those pieces or you get to know yourself and get to know those pieces, then you can be in your life day to day, authentic. So it's, I guess what I'm saying about that is we don't have to overcomplicate that. 
I just find we humans love to overcomplicate these things. It's be authentic. Tune into what, however you're being in your relationships or at work, does it feel true to you? What is your sort of internal sense? What is your body telling you? Does it feel real to you or does it not feel real? Mm-hmm. Let's keep it simple. And that's, to me, an access to authenticity in a kind of a tangible way. A lot of times, I think, when we talk about not being in authentic alignment, it's typically when we're in a reaction state. So when you're constantly reacting to something and then when you feed it back to yourself later, you go, mm, I don't really know that I showed up the way I wanted to there. Or I said the thing I wish I had said. Or, And if those moments where you're evaluating that you're missing a lot more than you're hitting, then maybe it's a sign that awareness of self needs some more work. It's process oriented and the world is very outcome results oriented. And so what I notice is that there are two types of vulnerability in this world. There is vulnerability after you've processed it and you have your shiny little aha moment and you're ready to share that with the world and relate to everyone on how wise you are. And then there's process oriented vulnerability where we share when we're in it. We're really in it. We don't have the answers. We feel the pain. We're in the uncomfortable blech of the situation. And we just tell someone what's going on or we just put it out there, right? And we put it out there in a way that allows us to explore what it looks like to be vulnerable without having answers. And that's where connection lives because it allows someone else to come closer to us instead of us distancing from, well, I learned this thing and that makes me so well adjusted because look, I turned my trauma into triumph and how cool am I? And so a big practice of true, genuine vulnerability in an authentic way for me is in allowing ourselves to be process-oriented with it, in being in the messiness of our lives in relation to others without needing to button it up first before we share it. And it's our culture. It's so much our culture, right? Success is about your results and what can you measure and so forth. One of the tools I use, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Enneagram. Love it, love it, love it. And on the Enneagram, the three type, I don't even really like that word because people automatically think we're putting you in a box, but it's actually the opposite. But the three type or style way of showing up in the world is to really measure achievement. Everything is about how do I look? What are my results? This is the way that personality got developed over time. And we all have our ways of developing our personality over time. For example, if I'm working with somebody who's showing up as a three, we're looking at what else is happening in your life? Like, who are you when you're not defining yourself by your results? Talk about authentic self. Now we're talking about our whole self and our real self, not just what we do. And I love that you brought in the Enneagram because I had, you know, those casual conversations you have with someone where they're just like riffing off and they're blowing your mind, but you're just sitting there and they don't even realize that they're blowing your mind with everything that they say. I had this conversation with someone the other day and she was talking about Enneagram. And because she asked me what mine was and I haven't taken it in a really long time, but I think I was like a two and that a lot of women who I, who test as a two are told to retest because that's like a socializing thing. And then maybe I was like a seven or something. And anyway, I have to retake it. But she was like, I'm a six. I think she said, I'm a six. And so I'm really in my six. And then my business partner uh, is a you know nine and she teaches me how to be a nine and I'm not really honoring my two. And so I'm trying to honor my two more. And she's just talking about all of the numbers. And I'm sitting there like, you can do that. You can honor the other ones. It's not just what your results are. Oh, I had no idea that was a whole way of thinking about this. And it was mind blowing to me. But if I hadn't, if she hadn't been so vulnerable, but also open with these 
what some people would consider weaknesses, these parts of her that she wasn't as developed in, if she hadn't honored that was a growth moment rather than a a vulnerability, so to speak, then I would have never been privy to that understanding or that perception of how powerful of a tool this was for being able to see the other things in this uh, dynamic and say, ooh, I want a little of that, right? And I want a little of that too. And just because this is where I am right now in my process doesn't mean I can't be excited about where my growth opportunities are and and curious about how I can step into those things, right? This is where curiosity grows. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that's the whole point of it is to look at where are your growth lines? Where are your growth lines? Where are you going to use other parts of yourself? Yeah, we do a lot of this or I do a lot of this with strengths and values is that we look at what if you believed you had all of them? all of the strengths of the picking. And so just because you're not utilizing patients on a regular basis doesn't mean that you can't access it. Doesn't mean that if you knew that it was part of the buffet and you're like, you know what? Today I could really go for some patients. That would really help me out, would make me feel good, would make me be able to handle this situation or whatever. Then go grab some. And it doesn't mean that you're going to grab it the next time you're coming up to the buffet. This is what is so great about all of these kind of tools, right? Like the Enneagram. If I want to run a marathon, I'm probably going to build up my lung capacity. I'm probably going to focus on building up my leg muscles, right? I'm maybe not going to focus as much about my arm muscles Mm -hmm. to accomplish that particular event. Yeah, I have had... Many people, including myself, get the results of the Enneagram and go, oh, wow, really? Now, if I tweak that in the sort of wrong direction, if you will, a little bit more, it would be like, oh, that's a problem. Mm. Rather than just, as you said earlier, Madeline, just being curious and understanding a little bit about how I got there. And then you're touching on, Cynthia, something so important, which is that we have these mental muscles, just like we have these physical muscles. And and I love how you're talking about, just jump into grabbing a little patience. If we can help people with seeing that those are muscles to build rather than just something they either have or don't, that too is super empowering. When we stop looking at coaching and therapy and any of these practices as a broken fixing project, and we look at it more as a understanding ourselves project, these practitioners become facilitators. We're only facilitators. We're facilitating conversations with yourself, right? But one of the big common threads that I see, whether it's people coming to coaching with me or people going to therapy or whatever, is they come with a crisis usually or a challenge they're facing and the tagline, I don't know what to do. I'm facing the situation or this thing is happening in my life or I've, I've gotten to this point and I just don't know what to do. I'm immobilized. I'm paralyzed by this. I don't know how to move forward. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And to me, the reason why all of this stuff comes down to I don't know is because the answer to it is always self-awareness. It's always Mm. creating consciousness and creating awareness in ourselves to be able to understand what resources we need to pull in. And therapy has become, or counseling 
coaching. I'm using it all generally, but these facilitating conversations can be so liberating because it gets us out of our own way for a second, out of our own fixed perspective. It introduces curiosity in conversations. And I think that's a, a wonderful thing, not a shameful thing, that the shame comes more from the idea of it's a bad thing to ask for help, world of broken people, blah, blah, blah. But what if we started talking about going to get help, going to find support as just that? Having someone in your corner, having a facilitator. I think this is what mm -hmm. creates such a charming notion around the idea of coaching is, yeah, yeah, the sport of life is something I need a little coaching in. Yeah. I need a second perspective here. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we can start having conversations. I wanted to share the wealth. I wanted to say, hey, you know what? You just told me you're struggling, right? With this aspect of life. I would really suggest that you maybe get a session or two. We want to share it. We want to share the things that we feel are helpful because we want to be helpers. So why wouldn't I share these great resources about yeah. a book maybe that I read that was really insightful or maybe it is um, working with Ellie because she has a really great perspective about leadership and empowerment or something like that. Or maybe I would really encourage you to work with Madeline who can maybe take your way of thinking and introduce some different ways or read that book or or whatever. It's instilling hope. And I think there's one of the key ingredients to managing a world that is broken. Mm. We tend to believe as people that because we're human and we were born human, that we have the operator's manual of being human with us at all times. And that it's a huge difference between saying, I want to have someone coach you on your tennis game because you weren't born a tennis player. You mm -hmm. learned how to be a tennis player. Of course, it's normal to have some people help you with your tennis game, right? So why is it that we think that just because we were born with these brains that we are inherently owners of the operation manual of them? That's not necessarily true. In fact, if we did have that, it's been filled with everyone else's opinions of what the operational mm. manual, it's the most subjective operational <laughs> manual in the world. And it's not consistent right. because your manual looks different from my manual. And we're all just trying to figure out which rules are the ones we want to actually follow. Never mind the fact that even with an objective manual, like the one to my car, I don't actually think I've ever read it, which is probably not something I want to admit to my husband. There are so many things that we're just like, oh, I'll just figure it out as I go. And so when we talk, have these conversations, I think a big part of what creates stigma is this idea of I should know, right? I should know the answers because I'm me and I'm a person and everyone else has it figured out. So how come I haven't figured it out? And it's they might be operating on a different manual. They might have a team of people co-authoring it with them. It Yours might have been soaked in the rain and is bleeding through and you're still trying to figure out what those words actually say. We all have a different booklet that we're operating off of, some of which, some of which we haven't even looked at yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're still trying to figure out how we work. It's so normal to say, oh, I'd love to introduce you to my masseuse or here's my tennis coach, hope you up your game. And yeah, it can be like minorly offensive if you tell someone that their backhand isn't very nice. <laughs> But right. but in this big game of our mental wherewithal is we are so prideful about the ownership of our own minds that it is really hard to admit that it gets ahead of us sometimes. 
that it's a little uncontrollable up there, <laughs> that we need a little help, that we need someone to crack open the spine of our manual with us and say, hey, what about this? Have you thought about this? Is this something you actually agree with? And it's hard to admit that we don't know very much. And I'm, I'm all for self-awareness, too. And I think I was approaching 50 before I started to get comfortable with not knowing because of what you just described and growing up in a family that was all about who knows what. We're talking conversations, debate at the, the dinner table about who's right about this, who's right about that. So with that framework, the belief for me was I should know X, Y, and Z. And it's, I don't know. And that's okay to be able to, it's actually really liberating. I think about coming into the world as a baby, right? And I always use the analogy of the baby learning how to walk. Like they don't know how to walk mm -hmm. before they start taking the steps, at least as far as we can tell. They start and they fall down and they go, okay, I'm getting back up. And everybody claps for them, by the way, that they fell down when they go and they go and they go until they get it. And then they've mastered it and then they're confident and then they go on. But it wasn't like they had this set manual and that's the only way they would learn how to walk. But over time, we lose that ability to, again, be vulnerable and take those chances and to not know and to go ahead and try the thing. And that in itself is the growth mindset, the being willing to give things a try without putting it in a right, wrong, good, bad, success, failure bucket. Just being curious. Once again, staying in curiosity a little mm -hmm. longer and maybe not going right to judgment. Oh, yeah, that's not for me or that. It, it's just opening and uh, moving yeah. through life that way. Yeah. And by the way, I find being open to being more curious is a beautiful, effective way to move us out of those mental states that don't feel as good, whether mm -hmm. it's anger, whether it's resentment, whether it's stress, whether it's worry. It's like I use the image of a ladder and I didn't cop with this. Somebody else did or a few different people did. But if you imagine a ladder kind of at the bottom of the ladder at the very bottom would be death right but above that would be like anger and somewhere above that would be resentment and somewhere above that would be anxiety in the middle is curiosity and then we can move up to mm -hmm. hope humor love gratitude etc joy at the top of the ladder and if people can take a couple of little steps up to curiosity as you're saying Cynthia rather than oh I have to go from feeling gritty down and out to just being positive all the time and being joyful, mm. that's too much. But mm. if I can just get into kind of a curious state, that's just a couple runs up. Oh, maybe mm -hmm. I can do that. The reality is that we don't develop our relationship with these things, right? We don't develop our relationship with curiosity, with anger, with fear, with anything, because we're so focused on mitigating, right? But it's not about mitigating the risk. It's about mastering your relationship with fear. But we're so focused on the firefighting. It's that results orientation, right? The firefighting and the risk mitigation and the trying to control our environments and, and what's available rather than really mastering that relationship in a way that we're prepared for anything. And this is inherently why we talk about values, strengths, mindset, thoughts, all of this is that fortification that we create in understanding ourselves is what gets us through anything. It gets us through anything, some harder than others for sure, 
But when we really deeply know our inner resources and we get rid of the shame around being able to access them more freely and talk about all of that stuff more regularly with the people we care about in our lives, then we create environments that are conducive to things like resilience and hope and humor and whatnot. True. And it's our, and our brain wants to keep us safe. We know that now, right? Mm-hmm. We know that's the inclination. Let's go to safety, whether it's I don't want to be embarrassed whether it's I don't want to have a panic attack in public or I don't, whatever it is, I want to stay safe. And again, we create more, we get, we go through the process of self-awareness, then we can see there's not as much danger as we thought there was anyway. We don't even need to mitigate the risk. There actually is no fire. We can put that aside and breathe a little bit, have a little space, see what our feelings are. Yeah, absolutely. And then we can see opportunity, right? We can realize there's no fire or maybe there is, but it's not one we can't handle. So we put it out. Once the smoke clears, like you were saying, I take a breath, I see potential. I see my way forward. In the interest of keeping things simple, when I was transitioning from therapy to coaching, I was really taking a look at and building my self-awareness around why am I doing this? And that's There's lots of answers to that. But one was I was looking at women who are superb at creating lots of things except space for themselves. The sleep don't slow down just a teeny tiny bit from that crazy hamster wheel of life just to pause and see what our strengths are. Then it's just complicating things. It's just making it more difficult. But this idea of just a little pause, a little bit of a break, whatever that looks like, it could just be a few breaths three or four times a day. Mm -hmm. It's so tiny and ridiculously simple and not rocket science and so powerful. And if this entire episode hasn't been one giant ad for why everyone in the world (laughs) should go out and get a therapist or a coach, because this is the stuff. This is the stuff I talk about with my clients all the time. Yes, of course. There's maybe 10% of our sessions where it really is a crisis or a big thing or emotions are really high and we need to find a way to work through that together. 100%. But the rest of the time, most of it is spent on these types of conversations, on the empowering ones, on the rich ones about what you do have, not what you don't have. When we really look at the reality of what's created inside of these environments, there is No reason to not advocate for that in your world with people that you think should have it. What if we all had someone who was literally paid to be in our corner? That's pretty powerful that their whole full-time job is just holding space for us to be our best self, so to speak. Wouldn't we all want that? Why wouldn't you recommend that to your friend? I would love to see a world where we we talk about how to, from a very young age, nurture the mind and keep it well, as well as the spirit, mind, body, soul, so that maybe when we hit our whatever age, we can have a little bit of a head start. I'm seeing bits of it. My daughter's high school for the first time has, they're just calling it freshman seminar, but it's really eight weeks on emotional intelligence. And I am Mm -hmm. so excited. I talked to, I already talked to the teacher uh, about this and about what else they can do to continue this. But I agree, Cynthia, even younger. Mm -hmm. And and in the elementary school, five, six, seven, eight years ago, they were doing some pause and pay attention Mm -hmm. to how you're feeling and breathe a little bit. So mm-hmm. there was some of there's some of that starting, but what a different world it would be if it was just part of the program for mm-hmm. parents and 
in schools. It's like mm-hmm. pediatricians should be aligned. Every single pediatrician should be aligned with somebody who can mm-hmm. work on the mind stuff. That would be pretty cool. And it would be a very different world if we started this at a young age. And so if you're listening and you're thinking to yourself that you want to be a part of this, you don't have to be a practitioner to be a part of this. You just have to start seeing yourself as a resource. And I think for me, that's the bottom line of how these conversations start in terms of feeling less stigma around recommending a therapist or a coach or whatever, any type of thing is how can you be a resource and how can you see that as a resource and how can you communicate that as a resource that it's not a band-aid, it's not a a fix, it's not a here, I don't want to deal with this. So you go talk to someone vibes. It, It really is just being a resource, just providing an opportunity for someone to help themselves to engage with themselves, learn about themselves, et cetera. So If you want a resource because you just love resources, you've come to the right place with the podcast first and foremost. But secondly, we'd love to invite you into the Nomi space further. There is the Nomi Club, which you can find at nomi.com, where we run all sorts of casual meetups, workshops, et cetera, with a collective of different coaches and therapists, because we believe that you don't just need one opinion. You need a whole team of people who really care about these things and want to see you succeed and want to see you flourish and thrive. So we have all sorts of things from all different types of wellness, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional. We are always looking for requests and the prices range from zero to 25 USD. Sometimes we do things for free because we just believe that these resources need to be out there. So as always, mom, do you want to end us with a quote? So I have a quote from um, Maya Angelou. If you are always trying to be normal, you will never know how amazing you can be. Love that. Very on point. So Ellie, if people want to work with you, how can they get in touch and who should be reaching out? My website is ellielanecoaching.com. Pretty easy. And primarily I'm working right now with women who are either growing their leadership skills. They might be owning their own businesses or they might be in their place of work. And then other women who are really invested in their personal and professional growth and are ready to be active in that process, which as we talked about a little bit before is really what coaching is. And I find that often because of my background as a therapist, people who are really interested in the emotional piece of things. They're not just interested in, I want to make more money in my business, for example. They really want to do the emotional work. They're seeking me out. Of course, we're going to do that very important piece together. Fantastic. We will put all of that in the show notes as usual. And it sounds like a really amazing opportunity to work together. Thank you so much for being a part of today's episode, Ellie. Thank you for having me. It's so fun. We hope you all had fun out there. We will see you in a couple of weeks. And until next time, be well. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope our conversation provides some insight and practical ways to navigate and understand you. If you have found our show to be helpful, please pass it along. Madeline and I are hoping you will join us in creating a ripple effect of mental health and well-being. As always, thanks for listening to the Nomi Podcast. This is Cynthia and Madeline asking you to be good to you.